Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Preston Lauterbach about his book, The Chitlin Circuit and the Road to Rock and Roll, published in 2011 by W.W. W. Norton. The focus of Lauterbach's book is the circuit of one-night dance clubs that, in the author's terms, were the life of sepia bands in the pre-rock and roll 20th century United States. It was a circuit that covered a broad swath of the country's mid and southern sections, from Chicago in the north to Florida's panhandle in the southeast, to eastern Texas in the southwest. Anchoring the circuit were a few big-city Bronzevilles, predominantly African-American sections of a few metropolitan areas. Indiana Avenue in Indianapolis, for instance, was run by Denver Ferguson, inventor of the baseball ticket racket, briber of police, and owner of the Sunset Terrace, the swankiest nightery on the avenue. In Houston, Don Roby ran the Bronze Peacock, another hotspot on the circuit, founded Peacock Records, and controlled a host of artists and a section of the circuit consisting of East Texas and Western Louisiana. And Memphis, home to Beale Street, WDIA Radio, the Mitchell Hotel, and the Rialto Palace Theater and Hippodrome. It was in this circuit, Lauterbach convincingly argues, that rock and roll was born. Early jazz artists like Walter Barnes started it off, followed by those who truly rocked. Roy Brown with Good Rockin' Tonight, Louis Jordan with Caldonia, Johnny Ace, T-Bone Walker, Winoni Harris, Big Mama Thornton, James Brown, Little Richard. In the end, what Lauterbach describes in this book is a network, an underground music scene that made it possible for many a musician and band to make a living doing what they loved, and for some of them to launch successful careers in the mainstream music industry. Preston Lauterbach lives in Memphis, Tennessee, which is where I reached him for this interview. Hello, Preston, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's um, my pleasure. Why don't Why don't we start before we get right to the book? Why don't we start with uh, a little biography? Tell Tell us something about yourself, your upbringing, etc. Well, um, I'm, I'm, in terms of my upbringing, I'm not a real likely candidate to have written a history of the Chitlin Circuit. Uh, having grown up in San Diego, California, well, first being born in 1974, which is after uh, most of the, the most fruitful years of the Chitlin Circuit were behind it, and having grown up from there in San Diego, California, which was not exactly a, a prominent uh, port of call for black culture, much less the Chitlin Circuit. Um, it was something that I gravitated to later in life, but it really stems from uh, a couple of of really deep interests and, and important parts of, of my upbringing and, and, and personal background. Uh, that is, my grandfather was a, an intelligence agent, and so the kind of work that he did involved all sorts of research, interviewing, uh, and a lot of, I think, very intriguing things, uh, becoming interested in networks, uh, underground networks. That was uh, That's one way of saying what what he was involved with throughout the 40s and 50s, you know, the, the peak of the Cold War era. But I also was nurtured uh, with a, a great love and appreciation for history by my father, who was not in San Diego, but out in Virginia. So I had this bi-coastal upbringing, San Diego, which is a city that exists totally in spite of history, you know, where people <laughs> move to to get away from history, Um uh, and on the other side of, of my upbringing was Virginia, which, of course, is absolutely obsessed with its own history and graveyards and old houses and, and other intriguing sites that don't meet the eye in San Diego abound. So I always loved history. I always loved the, the investigative process. Throughout college, I was majoring in history and journalism uh, throughout grad school. I, I channeled my interests into, into blues music. 
And one thing led to another along those lines. In uh, summer of 2003, I had the opportunity to write a feature magazine story on a performer whose name is Bobby Rush, who is prominent in uh, African-American blues circles to this day. And he took me out in his van, uh, and I, I went, followed him to a couple of gigs and interviewed him along the way. And he billed himself as the king of the Chitlin circuit. So that to me, uh, that was my introduction to it. Uh, the scene was totally unlike anything else that I had ever witnessed before or, or thought had existed. And so I was extremely curious about it and, and just wanted to see what it was all about. So mm-hmm. from that introduction, it was the basic questions, you know. Um, what is it? Who runs it? How does it function? Where does it go? How far back does it go? And those just very basic questions pertaining to the Chitlin circuit led to oh, about a seven-year process. So, so I'm going to back up just a second, though. I'm going to try and be investigative here. You, Virginia and San Diego, I think that the Navy is involved somehow. Well, close. Uh, my my grandfather uh, ended up, well, he was in the CIA. And after the, the first generation of CIA agents, uh, which which the agency began in 1947, there, there were a series of, of major restructures, heads rolled. Um, and by the early 60s, my grandfather was up in Virginia working as an instructor uh, for the agency rather than out in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my mother and father met there. My dad was from Virginia uh, and and. The mom, my mom's side of my family was the, the classic, you know, uh, government employee, Virginia outsider. And, uh, San Diego just coincidentally is where my, my grandparents retired to and where my mom's side of my family gravitated to after there. So no Navy despite, uh, despite those clues. So yeah, you always gotta <laughs> research these seemingly obvious clues to, to the very end to make sure that you're right about it. And you mentioned, uh, college and grad school. Where'd you go? Went to a tiny little liberal arts school called Flagler College, which is in St. Augustine, Florida. Attended grad school uh, for a while at the University of Mississippi, for a little while at the University of Virginia, and that was that for my education. <laughs> okay, um, let, let's get to the book then. And All right. I thought I thought we might start a little more grand, a little more macro, and then get to the specifics. So if you if you could tell us, please, uh, what is the Chitlin Circuit or what was? It does still exist today. It was um, just in the most basic definition. It's it's the network of black nightclubs, whether they be called juke joints or dance halls. Sometimes larger venues uh, like auditoriums and and, uh, and and in some cases theaters. You know these really grand theaters like like the Apollo in New York or the, the Howard down in Washington, D.C. Collectively, those venues make up the Chitlin Circuit. It functioned, you know, from its roots really go all the way back to the, to the 20s, and it still functions in some form today. So from about the 30s to the 60s, it was really the, uh, the wellspring of, of American music because of racial segregation and black artists being um, 
you know, more or less confined to the Chitlin circuit with some crossover to the mainstream opportunities happening here and there. But for the most part, I mean, that was the Chitlin circuit is where everybody from, uh, geez, you know, uh, Earl Hines, uh, Count Basie, Jimmy Lunsford in the big band era, to Louis Jordan, Roy Brown, on to Little Richard and James Brown, all of these artists, B.B. King, uh, Sam and Dave, Ray Charles, you name I mean, you know, virtually all the black artists in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame got their start on the Chitlin Circuit. So it is that network of clubs that sponsored those artists in their, in their formative years. But behind the venues and behind the artists, the circuit was a network of black business people who really made the circuit hum as uh, as an enterprise, really made the money flow. And that's really, I mean, without money, there is no circuit. There, There is no, without financial support, there is no B.B. King, there is no Little Richard. You know, they, they needed money to make, to, to be able to make this job work for them, uh, on the, in the most very basic sense of it. And in the grander sense, you know, the whole enterprise needed money to make it worthwhile for everybody involved. Now that money was generated in a whole lot of, uh, extra legal ways. So the people who were behind the circuit, virtually all of them were more or less kingpins of their respective communities. And so that means that they functioned as numbers runners, which was basically the street lottery in black America. It played the exact same way that, like, your pick three, your pick four, your pick six is today, only paying off in smaller increments uh, and, and operated sub rosa. You know, it was it was illegal, but quasi-legal in the sense that Numbers run, or the people who orchestrated the numbers bankers who really ran the games paid off law enforcement, uh, in order to be able to, to do their thing. So funds were generated that way. Funds were generated through, um, through liquor, bootlegging. Funds were generated through prostitution. And they were funneled back into the entertainment industry via nightclubs. And these nightclubs were not only venues that showcased the artists that all of the, the top dogs would play at, but they were also laboratories where, where young up-and-coming artists would learn their trade and would do their thing. So you, you mentioned uh, their grandfather's interest in underground networks. Um, is, is the Chitlin an underground network, or uh, is, can we characterize it that way? I think it depends entirely on your perspective. Uh, to... White people throughout history, it would be an underground network because it wasn't something that they knew about or that operated with their knowledge or that confronted them in any kind of way on a daily basis. Uh, to black people, it was just life. I mean, it was just culture. It was, it, it was what brought them their, I mean, most famous and, and renowned entertainers. So yeah, that's a, that's a really good question because it touches on that issue of perspective. Um, again, getting back to the time frame that the book deals with, which is rooted mostly in the 30s to the 50s, then you're talking about, I mean, just the depths of, of racial segregation. And that meant two separated worlds, the white world and the black world. So, yeah, the Chitlin Circuit would be underground to white people, and it would be just normal to black people. Does it exist uh, mostly in the South? 
Yeah, that would be your most concentrated area, uh, would be the shortest distance from gig to gig between these artists is one way to look at it, would be in the Deep South. Now, there is a, is and has been a Chitlin Circuit presence wherever you find a black community. Uh, Los Angeles, Oakland, California, Seattle, where Ray Charles uh, spent some of the early parts of, uh, early days of his career. Those were all circuit hotbeds on the West Coast. Uh, Chicago, Milwaukee, on around uh, Indianapolis, key in the Midwest. So a couple of big Midwestern hubs, a couple of big Northeastern hubs. But what you had down south was just the the depth and concentration of clubs all across the map. You know, you wouldn't have to jump from Texas to California, that type of distance, whatever that is, 1,500 miles uh, to make a gig down south. It'd be more like, you know, Pensacola, Florida to uh, Mobile, Alabama uh, to Gulfport, Mississippi to New Orleans. You know what I mean? So there mm-hmm. would be like five gig stops in uh, 500 to 800,000 miles down south, sometimes even more than that. And I tell you what, that geography gets back to the kingpins because the kingpins, I'll give you an example, a man named Don Roby who was the kingpin of Houston, Texas, going back to the late 30s. So his base of operations was Houston. He had a nightclub in Houston. He had connections uh, downtown, you know, amongst white leadership that allowed him to rent out the, the city auditorium, you know, the big dance hall downtown for black dances. But in addition to his, his hub in Houston, he had relationships in all the little towns surrounding Houston. So it was like a hub and spokes situation. He had partners, you know, co-kingpins, for lack of a better term, in little towns like Beaumont, Texas, uh, Port Arthur, Texas, on into Louisiana. And that way, let's say Don Roby uh, had B.B. Um, King. Well, he could buy... 10 B.B. King shows, do one in Houston, and do the rest of them in other satellite towns around Houston where he had influence or had partnerships uh, or something along those lines. So that system worked most elegantly down south where there was that that high degree of of concentration because of the black population. You know, it it just it's a real economically... um, lean and mean operation. I mean, it just goes where the people and the dollars are, and it doesn't go where they aren't. Worked real efficiently for a lot of years. So some of these people you've mentioned already, Little Richard, James Brown, um, they obviously I, graduated from the Chitlin circuit to, to uh-huh. mainstream. But but there were others, I, it seems, this could be their career, could be on the Chitlin circuit, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And And... You know, depending on your time frame, um, you know, there was there was a lot of money to be made playing strictly black joints. Um, one artist that comes to mind is Roy Brown. Now, he he is the the man who wrote a song called "Good Rockin' Tonight," which you know, amidst a, a much larger and longer debate about what is the first rock and roll record and where rock and roll began and what isn't the first rock and roll record. A senseless debate, in my view, which we can get into later. But regardless of of what you think about rock and roll music, 
that song, Good Rockin' Tonight, was the one that really broke that term rockin' as a lifestyle, as a musical phrase, as the beginning of what we still know today as rockin'. You know, it started in 1947 with Roy Brown. But anyhow, his big hit was Good Rockin' Tonight, and he performed, oh, man, almost entirely for black crowds. I can't think of, I don't think he ever crossed over to a white audience. But he was such a big hit, and the Chitlin Circuit was so self-contained at the time that he came along that he really did quite well. I mean, he would, uh, you know, his the way that the contracts worked for these performers, they would get what's called a guarantee, which is a minimum dollar amount that they would receive no matter what, you know, rain or shine. If nobody came to the dance hall, they would still get their guarantee. Roy Brown, at the peak of his fame, was getting... I want to say a $4,000 guarantee, which is pretty good, you know, for one night's work. Hell, I'd take that right now. Um, so he had his band of about seven or eight guys, and, and he had his agent to pay off. But other than that, I mean, he was cruising around in a Cadillac from uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana, you know, up to uh, Greenwood, Mississippi, up to Memphis, Tennessee, just playing black joints uh, with a attache case full of cash. and made a very good living for a while doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, other people. And did, did he get paid when, when other people like Elvis recorded his song? His song? That song? <laughs> uh, you know, that, I don't know about that exactly. I don't know yeah. about that exactly. I know initially, I would say initially he did not. I believe the way the story went, uh, a man named Dave Bartholomew, who wrote a lot of Fats Domino's songs, wrote and produced a lot of Fats Domino's songs, and was around New Orleans when Roy Brown broke out of that, that city. Understood, Bartholomew understood the importance of the copyright, copyright registry, getting your composer's songwriting royalties. He understand that, understood that part of the business a lot better than Roy, and said, damn, you know, all the songs that you wrote, you should be a millionaire. When Roy had Roy's performing career had ended, and he really didn't—he wasn't doing so hot financially. So my understanding is that Bartholomew eventually got Roy straightened out and got his his uh, royalty revenue flowing again. But no, initially, uh, he, he, Roy Brown was not getting the the proceeds from from songs like "Good Rockin' Tonight." Right. Um, okay then. Well, let's get. A, you've already mentioned a few characters. Your, your book is full of, of characters, which is one of the interesting parts. Um, let's start with uh, the beginning and, and this, this guy named Sax Carey. Is that how I pronounce it? You got it. Tell us about Sax and your, your talk with him. Well, I mean, he was just wonderful. You know, he was the key source who opened up this whole world to me, uh, or at least the historical aspect of it. Like I said, Bobby Rush was the one who showed it to me. Um, but from Bobby Rush, you know, I became interested in the background. And really, it was a very word-of-mouth process. I would talk to people and say, well, I'm interested in the history of the Chitlin Circuit, whether they be old musicians or club bouncers or just people hanging out and looking like they knew the story. And eventually somebody said, well, you got to call Sax Carey. He says that he worked for uh, this old booking agent, and he'd be great for you to talk to. So I so I figured out his telephone number and called him up, told him what I was doing. I said, I'm 
interested in the history of the Chitlin Circuit. I'm trying to write this book. And he just kind of laughed. And he said, well, I work for the man who invented the Chitlin Circuit. So I said, oh, man, i got to talk to this guy. He lived down near Tampa, Florida, and I lived up near Memphis, Tennessee. So I rented a car, and I rode, rode down there and found him living in this trailer. Um, and it was not a, even by trailer standards, it was, it was not a nice uh, living arrangement. Thing had been busted up in a storm real bad, so the 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 hull of it was split. He said animals would crawl in there and stuff, uh, but he had all of these these just incredibly rich stories and anecdotes about what the life had been like. He was 86 years old when I met him around 2005, and so his show business career touched on every aspect of Chitlin Circuit history. Not only that. But it touched on every possible role because he led a big band for a while. So he knew what it was like to conduct an orchestra. He could still remember what their guarantee was, what they got paid every night, and the whole breakdown. He said, well, you know, the band leader, me, I'd get $30. Uh, the first chair would get $17, and the rest of the guys would get 12 each. And damned if he wasn't right, I found old contracts that dated from that period uh, for the orchestra he worked for, and he remembered these things perfectly. Not only had he been a, an orchestra band leader, uh, he had done comedy. He had worked on the promotion side of the business. So he was uh, basically a payola bagman for one of the black record labels. Uh, so he knew what it was like to deliver cash to DJs in exchange for record plays. So, I mean, virtually any aspect of the business that I wanted to know about he had insight and experience to offer, and he was objective. He wasn't one of those guys who would say, well, yeah, you know, Elvis Presley really learned how to shake his hips watching me. You know, there, there are plenty of people like that out there who, <laughs> for a variety of reasons, are looking to exaggerate or tell stories. And, you know, that's good and well and entertaining, but it wasn't really helping me out. Uh, but he was objective, had a good memory, and his tips invariably led to really, really important, crucial information that I never in a million years would have correctly guessed without him. Uh, specifically, I never would have gone to Indianapolis, Indiana, <laughs> expecting to find the roots of the Chillin' Circuit. But that is where his tip about the man that he said he worked for, the inventor of the Chillin' Circuit, led me. Well, let's go there then. You, you start your your book in in Indianapolis and in Indiana Avenue. That's tell right. Us, tell us about the roots of the Chitlin Circuit in Indiana, please. Well, uh, the man who Sachs worked for, uh, beginning in the late '30s, was a kingpin by the name of Denver Ferguson, and Denver operated a numbers racket, which was that street lottery I described earlier. And Denver's legitimate trade was that he was a printer. He had a big print shop in this black neighborhood, printing things like handbills for, you know, carnivals and circuses and dances and um, ads for the grocery store. And, you know, it was it was a real dense little neighborhood around Indiana Avenue. The entire black population of, uh, you know, well into the thousands. I don't, I don't want to call the wrong number right now, but uh, the entire black population were crowded into this little area. Uh, and so Denver saw an opportunity there to make some money through this lottery. Now, oh, and, and I'll tell you a funny thing that he did. So he had this print shop, right? And he was printing off 
these lottery slips, these tickets for people to fill in their number and make their bets. That's how the money came in. So the, that that would go out the front door, and the police would come right up to the back door of the printer shop to get their bribe. <laughs> so <laughs> the patrolman would get five dollars. Uh, the sergeant would get ten dollars. Uh, the the lieutenant would get twenty dollars, and the captain would get fifty dollars. Maybe the chief would get his too. But they would all come up every week or every month, and they would get their their little piece of the action, <laughs> and he was able to to function that way. But anytime somebody got promoted on the force, they would get a little bump up the bribe scale too. So it rewarded rewarded hard work, you know, taking those bribes. Uh, so Denver was an interesting guy, you know, he, and I want to say something, Matt, this is important to me, that, so people understand that I'm not, in a, in a moral sense, glorifying the bootlegging and the prostitution and the numbers running, but you've got to understand, racism compromised the morality of this country to the extent that ambitious, smart people like Denver Ferguson, like Don Roby, like all the kingpins in the book, they weren't allowed to go become uh, Wall Street stock traders uh, or business executives. They had every bit of the talent and the intelligence and the wherewithal to do terrific in those fields, but they just didn't have access to that kind of opportunity because of racism and segregation. And if they were ambitious, which these guys were, and smart, they had to go outside of the normal system in order to, in order to make money in order to become as, as wealthy as their, their energy and their talents and smarts uh, could allow them to be. And so I think you've got to understand what these these guys were doing in that context and not just think that they were, you know, that they were crooks or that they were evil or that they, I mean, you know, they did a lot of bad stuff, no doubt about it. Um, but it's almost like their their hand was forced. You know, it was either do this or be a doctor in the black community and make what, what little uh, your patients could afford you. And, and same thing with lawyer. I mean, all the professions existed on the black side, but the finances just didn't. So they had to go outside the system to make money. And this is what they did. Now, Denver, in addition to running this, this racket, was a real community builder. So he did little things. He and his brother, by the way, were in business together. Uh, so the, the Ferguson brothers were quite visible around Indiana Avenue. They dressed beautifully and drove fancy cars, but they were generous. And so they did things like buying the Little League baseball team uniforms and buying school supplies for teachers. Uh, C. Ferguson, Denver's brother, had a scholarship fund for local local high school graduates who wanted to go on to business college but couldn't afford it. Uh, they you know, try try being a black entrepreneur in 1935 and going to a bank and getting a loan to do something like something modest, open a cafe or open a, uh, you know, pool hall or something like that, you know, dry cleaner, barbershop, whatever. Tough to do, tough to secure capital. But these guys invested in the community. They gave people loans. Uh, they might not have been at the most competitive rates. And they might have been kind of uh, violently collected at times, but... They they did what they had to do. They built the community. They both of them built beautiful nightclubs that were uh, really the pride of the of the community there along Indiana Avenue. So the ledger is a little bit 
murky when it comes to these guys. They did a lot of good that they didn't have to do. They did a lot of illegal stuff. Um, and so it makes for, I think, some very compelling characters. But Denver, from his numbers rec game, built a beautiful nightclub. From his nightclub, let me back up for a second and say that he was he was himself a southerner. He was from a small town in Kentucky and had traveled, and so he knew about this phenomenon of segregation and how it crowded black people together, whether on Indiana Avenue in Indianapolis or on Beale Street down in Memphis or on Rampart Street in New Orleans and on and on and on. He knew that those places existed all the way across the map. And at his nightclub, he met all of these black orchestras. And so little by little, uh, over time, he assembled this, this stable of orchestras that he represented. And he booked them into dance halls all throughout the South. Now, it wasn't just legitimate clubs that he used, um, because those places, you know, any time you're dealing with a, an auditorium in a city or a big nightclub, the tax man is going to know about that and be there and collect uh the government's percentage of the proceeds. So he told Saks Carey, he said, you know, don't be afraid to go to the nondescript places. Go have a dance at a barn. Go have a dance at a tobacco warehouse. As long as you tell the people to go, they will go. What resulted was really along the financial scale of the numbers racket. So the numbers racket, people didn't have any high money to be wagering on these numbers. They would wager a nickel. They would wager a dime, whatever they could. And But it added up. So collectively, those nickels and dimes became hundreds to thousands of dollars. Those nickels and dimes collectively became, you know, barber shops, became uh, Little League baseball uniforms, school supplies. Um, they led to civic improvements. Now, the, the financial principle on the Chitlin circuit was similar. A lot of the, the fans of these little orchestras uh, down south, they didn't make a whole hell of a lot of money. But if you, you know, you multiply $50 in uh, Norfolk, Virginia by, you know, $50 in Pensacola, Florida by $50 in Texas, you know, it adds up. And so he would have a dozen or more orchestras out working this circuit every night and would bump one uh, out of one place to the next place and bring in another one right behind it. So he really got it. Denver Ferguson got this, this circuit and built it into a well-oiled machine. So, uh one of the one of the one of the artists that comes out of that is is Walter Barnes, is that right? That's right. Tell us a little bit about Walter Barnes, please. Barnes was another real crucial, I think indispensable character in the in the growth of the Chitlin circuit. He was active from the late 20s when he was a the orchestra leader at one of Al Capone's taverns in Chicago during the height of Prohibition uh, until 1940. Between that time, uh, he did something which was was really without precedent and and uh, of which there is no equal, and that is that he was both a journalist and a band leader. So he wrote for the Chicago Defender, which was the the USA Today of Black America. It was it circulated everywhere. Of course, 
USA Today comparison dies with what I'm about to say. Everybody read it. And uh, it was a very powerful force in black media and black thought and, and circulating uh, information for black list for black for black audience uh, only, right? And so Barnes, very interesting. He knew that, kind of like Denver Ferguson knew that all these people were out there. He knew that he could make himself famous. That people in these little towns in the South were reading his column. They were learning his name. He was writing about bands. And so he created this persona for himself where he was hanging around with Duke Ellington, you know, and slapping hands with W.C. Andy, and uh, he was a real big shot. And he put a band together and bought a pretty Cadillac and had white suits for himself in the band and would, would uh, perform in a tuxedo and, and wave the baton and... You know, he just exuded all of this this big city glamour that he knew the fans down in the Deep South were just dying for. Uh, so he really filled a need, but it was what was so interesting about him, not only did he use his, his platform at the Defender to promote himself, which was brilliant in and of itself, but he used it to transmit news um, from little towns in black America, you know, to everybody else around the country. But he, he really built his Chitlin Circuit business up just by being helpful. He would say, you know, any bands, he would write in his column, any bands coming through Memphis, Tennessee are, are recommended to get in touch with Professor Maurice Holbert, who has the Barn Nightclub. Uh, any bands coming through Dothan, Alabama should stay at uh, uh, Old Granny's Boarding House. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, you got to eat at the Palace Fried Chicken Cafe. So in other words, look, Make yourself to turn yourself again. Make yourself a, a an aspiring black musician in 1935. Well, how in the hell are you going to figure out how to get across this country, which is, you know, violently segregated and opposed to uh, black people's mobility in a lot of ways? Um, how are you going to not? You you don't just ride down the highway and and eat at Applebee's and sleep at the Holiday Inn. I mean, that's just not an option. So it was really hard for black orchestras lacking the information that Walter Barnes supplied to get out there and tour, you know, to, to be able to make a living. So he supplied that kind of information, and lo and behold, I mean, not long after he was out on the road uh, reporting where to play a dance uh, or where to stay or where to eat safely, he, he basically published this tour guide to traveling, to being black and traveling safely in America in the in the early to mid thirties, I mean, it's a really remarkable, uh, remarkable act and a, a, a remarkable accomplishment. So he started doing that, and lo and behold, a few months later, I bet he wish he hadn't because it went from the Walter Barnes band being the only orchestra down down south to everybody and his brother leading their bands down south, thanks to this information that that he had broadcast. But I'll tell you, you know, a Another rather remarkable fact about Mr. Barnes, uh, he died trying to protect his fans. He died for his fans. Uh, he was playing a dance hall in Natchez, Mississippi on April the 23rd of 1940. And he was up on the stage performing and saw that the place had caught on fire. And instead of panicking or trying to run out or trying to get away, 
he told everybody in his band, he said, look, you know, let's uh, music suits the Savage Beast, let's play a nice slow one. And so he, he turned to the crowd and he said, be patient. You can all get out safely if you don't panic. And so he played this real slow number and meanwhile watched chaos break loose out in front of him as, as fire consumed this place. People did indeed, I mean, almost had to trample and stampede to get out. There wasn't but one entrance or exit in the, in the building. Um, I believe he had about a thousand fans in the dance hall. And he and and 200 he well he and I think nine of his band members and about 200 uh, fans all perished in this fire, uh, but but about 800 got out as well, and he was thought to be a hero after this and compared with the the band that played on the deck of the Titanic as that ship sank. Hmm, that is that is there's another interesting. Um, um demise that you write about and I was hoping you'd tell just a little bit more you say that uh, uh, the killing of, of Robert Chambers may have changed American music history oh god <laughs> I, I'm not even uh, tell us a little bit about Robert Chambers and how that may have happened how it that, may have changed music history you know that gets down to the dynamic on Indiana Avenue in Denver Ferguson's day so there were a there was a white couple of white brothers called the Mitchell brothers in Indianapolis throughout the twenties and thirties. They were mobsters. They were Denver and C. Ferguson's competitors. They ran a nightclub which was in very close proximity to the, the Ferguson's nightclub. And it was a, a notorious dive, uh gambling, music, liquor, you know, probably a lot of fun, but also a lot of violence. And one of Mitchell's bouncers murdered a man who was in the in the Mitchell's club while gambling one night and took him out on the on the street and just dumped his body there and let him die. Now, people were used to a certain amount of fighting and violence in these in these clubs in this kind of environment. But that crime just thoroughly disgusted people and it brought a, a huge crackdown to Indiana Avenue. Uh, it made Denver Ferguson think, maybe I need to look beyond Indiana Avenue to make my, to make my living. And so it was that killing that prompted Ferguson to look beyond Indiana Avenue and to start his talent agency to really assemble the Chitlin circuit. And you take that step to the next one where some of the artists who played in these bands that Ferguson uh, had out on the road included people like John Coltrane, um, less prominent uh, than than Coltrane, but I think every bit of well, maybe not every bit as important, but but of importance were people like Big Maybell, uh, Lil Green, uh, and if you want to make the connection to the artists that came after them on the Chitlin circuit, then, I mean, you're really getting serious there. So, yes, when I say uh, Robert, the death of Robert Chambers helped to alter American music history, that is that is how that happened. It was a chain reaction. Because it, it influenced Denver to, to, to spread out. And, and exactly. Exactly. Yeah, because they got shut down on the avenue. And, and Denver realized that he could get shut down at any time because... 
his his position was pretty precarious. If the law just decided that they were going to put the lid on all of his action, then you know that would be it for him. Uh, so he recognized that, and he he went beyond the avenue. Mm-hmm. So so you move next uh, in your story. You spend some time talking about Houston, Texas, and you you've already told us a little bit about Don Roby. Um, uh, what more can you tell us right now then about Don Roby and and Houston? Well. Okay, this is how the torch moved along the Chitlin circuit. So, again, that stone cast in the sea, Robert Chambers killing uh, Denver Ferguson's agency. Well, Denver Ferguson's agency activated all these operatives across the Chitlin circuit, all of these other young kingpins, one of whom was Don Roby, who was located in Houston, Texas. Uh, Walter Barnes did some business with, uh, with, with Roby. I mean, yeah, with Roby as well. Uh, so Roby showcased, started off showcasing big bands in the late 30s. Uh, he was the promoter in Houston who would bring Duke Ellington, um, some of Denver Ferguson's organ- organizations were like the Tiny Bradshaw Band, the King Colax Band, Snookum Russell Band, uh, Big Maybell. So he was bringing all these orchestras into into Houston, and eventually got into the the nightclub game himself. But from that beginning, was I mean on the cutting edge of the black bu- music business all the way to until his death in the seventies. He was instrumental in the record business. Uh, he had. I don't know if it was the very, no, it certainly wasn't the very first black-owned label, record label, but it it was the first very successful black record label. He founded it in 1947, and it continued on until 1973, I believe, when he sold it. Uh, Peacock Records? Well, it started off as Peacock Records, that's right. And uh, he eventually merged with Duke Records, and through these, these two labels, uh, he brought the world Clarence Gatemouth Brown, Johnny Ace out of Memphis. Uh, he was the first uh, person to record the song Hound Dog, uh, though he did it with Big Mama Thornton rather than Elvis Presley. It would have been, I think, three years before Elvis's version came out. He recorded Little Richard before Little Richard got big. So Roby was was instrumental in the music business throughout all these different phases. I mean, he had a, a nightclub in Houston called the Bronze Peacock, which is one of the key laboratories uh, of, of early rock and roll because all of the musicians, as big band music started to evolve into small band music, all the musicians played at the Bronze Peacock and would hang out and jam together. So... I mean, somebody big like Louis Jordan would be jamming with, uh, you know, sometimes Sister Rosetta Tharp, the great gospel guitarist, would be on hand. And then young artists like Amos Milburn, great piano player, uh, would be soaking all this up and, and would adapt their own uh, new style uh, through what they heard in these jam sessions. So Roby had a big indirect influence on on the music that is sometimes hard to see if you just look at what came out on his records uh, he was you know he was stirring up the stew back in the in the late 40s and really helping to get rock and roll started he was a key really on that point of of starting rock and roll 
he was the key promoter in the early days of Louis Jordan's career. And Louis Jordan is, uh, you know, he's known today for, for songs like uh, Knock Me a Kiss, uh, Salt Pork, West Virginia, Beans and Cornbread, Five Guys Named Mo, Caldonia, so many great, great, great songs. Just a prolific, ingenious, clever songwriter, terrific singer. Uh, recorded duet, duets with Ella Fitzgerald and Bing Crosby. I mean, he ended up being just about as, you know, about as famous as, uh, as a black entertainer could be in the 40s. But he started off on the chitlin circuit, and he started off thanks to Don Roby, who saw that he was talented and was doing something different. You see, in the late 30s, early 40s, everything virtually everything in black music, at least at the, you know, at the high level that, that we're talking about here, was big band. It was all in the Ellington bag, whether it be, you know, Earl Fotherheim's, Walter Barnes band, all these bands patterned themselves after, after the Ellington set and, and that 15, 18, 20 piece orchestra. That was it. I mean, that was pop. That was, that was what was, was hot. But Louis Jordan came along and didn't have any 20 piece band. He had five pieces. Now, during the big band phase, it was all about arrangements, hot soloists, uh, primarily instrumental, you know, with, with a good bit of vocal, but uh, the vocalist would not have been a real featured part of, of the, the show. Um, but Louis Jordan did something different. He added a twist to that. Not only did he have a small band during the height of the big band craze, but he emphasized lyrics. As I said, he was great as a singer and as a lyricist, and so he put those, the lyrics to the front of the composition instead of uh, making the vocalist, you know, unload all the bags like uh, like they had done before and set up the bandstand. One one person who I quoted in the book said that being the vocalist in those days before Louis Jordan was like being the, the porter. You know, they had to lug everything around and set everything up. It was not the featured aspect of, of music at that point. But Louis Jordan changed those things. And he sang songs about, like, real black life. It wasn't the same kind of glamour and sophistication that, that Duke Ellington and the big bands exuded. It was, you know, it was more down home. It was more um, more funny, more real, more down to earth than all of that. And so those trends, small band, vocals, and down-to-earth lyrics, it sounds kind of simple when you say it now, but, I mean, think about it. That's the basic formula of rock and roll, and it began with Louis Jordan, and it couldn't have happened without Don Roby pulling the strings on the business end. Mm-hmm. How about then, uh, you, you move on, to, I, don't, I don't want to get out of the interview without getting to where you live, Memphis. Um, yeah. Well, well, let's tell us a little bit about Memphis' role on the Chitlin circuit. Oh, man, Memphis had uh, one of the roughest and toughest and most feared and intimidating and yet powerful kingpins on the circuit, a man by the name of Andrew Sunbeam Mitchell. Now, these kingpins all got over because, well, first of all, all of them were light-skinned. Don Roby, you could hardly tell from a white man. Uh, Denver Ferguson same. Could hardly tell from a white man. Uh, guy down in New Orleans, same. All of them were light-skinned. The significance of that 
uh, I just I leave it to the audience to put together. That's that's not really my department putting all that together. That's just a fact. On top of that fact, these guys all needed white partnership or cooperation in one way or another, whether it be Denver Ferguson driving all of the police or Sunday Mitchell, whose partner was one of the most successful and, and wealthy businessmen in the entire South, if not the, the whole USA. Uh, it was a guy named Abe Plow, who uh white businessman who'd gotten started selling cosmetics on Beale Street and running a pharmacy and eventually owned St. Joseph's Aspirin and uh, Coppertone, Skin Tan Lotion, Maybelline, Cosmetic, huge, just a tremendously successful wealthy guy. He, Abe Plow, for whatever reason, protected Sunbeam. And Sunbeam, uh, being a, a resourceful, intelligent businessman, recognized that he had this great opportunity. He's up there in Memphis. And the state of Mississippi is right below. And liquor, see, Sunbeam didn't get going until World War II. Liquor was still illegal in Mississippi. And so Sunbeam started this circuit uh, where he would partner with, let's see, two, two of his, his partner kingpins that I found out about in the research for the book. One was named Hardface. Hardface was down in Tunica, Mississippi, which is like an hour south of Memphis. Uh, another one is, is uh, Milton Barnes, not to be confused with Walter Barnes, who was down in Hattiesburg, which is other side, really it's like a diagonal line from uh, from Tunica and from Memphis is down in the uh, southeastern portion of the state of Mississippi. So what these guys did, they, they got their whiskey from Sunbeam. Uh, Sunbeam's wife, Ernestine, was a madam. Uh, and so... Sunbeam had liquor and had ladies, and Sunbeam's club in Memphis was this tremendous hub right there on Beale Street, the corner of Beale and Hernando. And some of the talent that came out of there would just about blow your mind. I mean, B.B. King got started on Sunbeam Circuit. Bobby Blue Bland got started on Sunbeam Circuit. Johnny Ace, Sunbeam Circuit. Uh, some, some lesser known, but I think equally vital guys like Little Junior Parker came out of there. So what they did was Sunbeam would would uh have these these terrific young artists who were who were building great popularity throughout black America and would send them down to, to these places to have gigs. Well they wouldn't just you know they would they would go, people would want to come out to hear BB King who had had his hot new record out or Johnny Ace or Bobby Blue Bland, but people would come out to hear the music, but when they did they would want to buy some of that Sunbeam liquor or dance with one of uh, one of the ladies, you know, that, that mm-hmm. uh, Sunbeam's wife Ernestine brought. So it was really this this brilliant, um, this brilliant, really threefold business venture where Sunbeam was making money off of the artists and gaining exposure for them, while also making money off of of the liquor purchased at the house at the at these gigs, and uh, and the women. Uh, Sunbeam also operated, um, let's see, I, I know it was active in at least two states, but he operated a pretty extensive gambling operation as well. So he was making a heck of a lot of money and doing a lot to propel the business. Uh, I, my favorite anecdote about Sunbeam that tells you so much um, is this, and that is in about 1949, Okay, so 1949, in the rural South, 
he is a black guy. Well, he hauled off one night and shot the sheriff of Tipton County, Tennessee. I mean, can you imagine <laughs> a black man shooting a white sheriff and getting away with it? Well, that's exactly what happened. He had balls, he had clout, and he had protection. And that was uh, those were the ingredients of, of his success. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as a way of, of the beginning of our wrapping up of, of our interview, you, you talk about uh, Beale Street and its renovation to, to a more modern, I guess, what, tourist kind of area. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about that, and maybe you can link that to what the, the Chitlin Circuit might look like today. Oh, gracious. Well, there's no short answer for that one. You know, the the entire Chitlin Circuit was horribly impacted by urban renewal, and it's kind of strange to me the the overlap in time of the crossover of Chitlin Circuit music into the mainstream. So people start, white people start listening to artists like Johnny Ace and Ray Charles and Little Richard throughout the early to mid-50s, you know, before those artists really just became mainstream stars. But as that process was slowly unfolding, there was another process uh, happening beginning at the federal level and trickling on down to to the local level where cities were receiving uh, money to uh, for what they called urban renewal. Well, what urban renewal in action ended up being was destroying black neighborhoods. And so all of these these great streets, these great black main streets throughout the country where the Chitlin Circuit had thrived for all these years, whether it be Beale in Memphis or Indiana Avenue in Indianapolis, Rampart Street in New Orleans, uh, West Dallas Avenue in Houston, all of these places. You go to, with the exception of Beale Street, you go to any of these places today, and I mean they're wastelands. Uh, the stroll, as it was called in Houston, is a freeway off ramp today. Uh, Indiana Avenue in Indianapolis, where Denver Ferguson founded the circuit, is a bunch of parking lots, office buildings, that kind of thing. Uh, Rampart Street in New Orleans, parking lots. There's a couple old buildings there that managed to survive, but uh, you know, the, the whole fabric of that civilization is just gone and and erased without much uh, mo- much notification of what had been there. So this happened on Beale Street as well, uh, where over a series of years, the all of the old original black businesses were little by little done away with. Uh, eventually, the street was just completely closed off. And for about 10 years, from 1973 to 1983, uh, you know, there was nothing there. The city eventually rebuilt Beale Street and opened it up as a tourist attraction, but, I mean, it's a completely different Beale Street from the Beale Street that you would have found in 1946. Uh, you know, it's no longer a grassroots, black-owned enterprise. Um, you know, it's a, it's a tourist attraction like Bourbon Street, basically. So the dynamic has changed, and that has changed the dynamic of the Chitlin Circuit really throughout the country. So today, you don't find the circuit on in – today, the circuit is, is more underground again, really. You don't just go to town and find a, a club. I mean, they're, they're in out-of-the-way places. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the, the history and those dynamics have, have changed a lot over the years. I wonder if the uh, 
the the music has changed as well. I mean, is it still a, a blues, R&B, jazz circuit, or is it more of a you know hip hop kind of circuit these days? I wonder. Oh, you know, that's a good a good question, and and there is there's a, a R&B blues chillin' circuit. Not so much jazz though. Some of the bands do collect do do bring a horn section with them. And there is a hip-hop chitlin' circuit as well, but it's two very different crowds. You know, the hip-hop crowd is much younger. The blues crowd is is, is much older. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's still alive and well. I mean, I think anywhere you've got a, a concentration of, of the black population, you've got people who aren't necessarily plugged right into mainstream culture or they have interests other than what's in mainstream culture, you know, the chitlin' circuit will find them. Mm-hmm. I, I think what your story um, of the Chilton Circuit is, is has much broader applications as well. In that, you know, there's all sorts of other music scenes that have followed this pattern. My own interest is much more white and punk rock, and you know, the early yeah. days of punk rock and do-it-yourself kind of stuff. And they, you know, had to create their own circuit because they weren't welcome in the mainstream music industry. That's right. And I'm sure there's other, whether it be uh, uh, race, ethnicity, genre, uh, these things exist in our economy. Country, they call it the kindling circuit, but it's it's the exact same thing, you know, it's honky-tonks and roadhouses instead of nightclubs and juke joints. Do they still call it the chitlin circuit today? Yeah. Wow. Fabulous. Well, um, as always in, in these interviews, Preston, uh, there's a lot more to your book than we've talked about, um, and which gives our interview uh, a teaser kind of function. And so I hope that the listeners will, will go out and, and read your book. And uh, I want to thank you very much for being on the show. Well, I want to thank you for reaching out to me and taking the time to, to do the interview. I really appreciate it. Okay. Well, well thank you very much. And uh, I'll talk to you another time. All right. You've been listening to a conversation with Preston Lauterbach about his book, The Chitlin Circuit and the Road to Rock and Roll, published by W.W. Norton in 2011. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thanks for listening.